0: Welcome to the SG Engage podcast, where it's all social good all the time. Sit back and relax as the brightest minds from across the social good community engage with trends, big ideas, and best practices to help you drive impact. Welcome to this episode of the SG Engage podcast. I'm your host, Steve McLaughlin with Blackbaud. Over the past year, we've had a lot of experts on the show to talk about how nonprofit organizations can respond in the age of COVID that we're all living and working and fundraising through. And last April, I had Melissa Banks, Stepno with Blackbaud, on the show to talk about the importance of using personas in your marketing and messaging when it comes to engaging with donors. And I thought it was about time, probably past due on the time. To bring Melissa back on the show to talk about some other lessons we are learning from nonprofit organizations um, who've been successful through COVID nineteen and beyond in terms of improving their fundraising efforts. So, welcome back to the show, Melissa.
1: Thanks for having me today. I'm happy to be here.
0: Okay, where to where to start? So many places, right? So uh, one of the things I know that you and I talked about last time on the show was this importance of understanding audience and the persona and the, the, the really big piece that you know mission still matters and, and don't stop asking your supporters to give. What are some other things that you've seen and that you've learned over the past couple of months that would be helpful for our listeners to hear about from a fundraising perspective?
1: I think the, the thing that's been most surprising to me as we're starting to get some of the data for the latter half of 2020 in and we're starting to analyze it is there's been this perception across the industry that fundraising has been down across most sectors, across most channels, and we're starting to see early evidence that that's actually not true. Now, let me just be clear in that I'm not saying we've had a stellar year. We certainly had our challenges in 2020, and there were certainly pockets that ground to a halt, for instance, in-person events, uh, face-to-face canvassing. But when we look across the industry as a whole, it's turning out that the year is much better than I think anyone anticipated after COVID started. Uh, And in particular, there are a lot of sectors that are seeing an influx of new donors, uh, which is really critical and something that I'd love for us to spend some time talking about because now the question must become, what do we do with so many new donors and how do we think about retention uh, in a way that we probably didn't anticipate that we would need to a year or so ago.
0: Yeah, it's a great point. Uh, you, you know, we've looked at a lot of the data from 2020. Um, things were not all good, but they were not necessarily all bad either. There are sectors and types of fundraising programs that actually did really well in 2020. Some really fascinating data and trends that we've been able to see. And, you know, that hopefully is uh a good sign into 2021 and beyond that point you made about retaining donors i think is really important right for for a lot of nonprofits they had a lot of donors either reactivate or just brand new donors for the first time to their organization because of covid why is that so important to sort of continue to retain them and and what can orgs do about that in 2021
1: it's a great question. So, I think it's a couple of things. First of all, we all know the adage that retention is easier than acquisition. And in some ways, 2020 gave us acquisition by, um, by happenstance, certainly all of the good work that's been coming out of our um, fundraising offices have driven that new donor pool. But COVID itself, I would say, is, is a happenstance, not something that we particularly planned on happening. So, if we move into 2021 and think about our retention strategies as our standard. Uh, strategies that we've used historically within our organizations, we may miss the boat in truly connecting with our first-time, I'll call them COVID donors, in a way that resonates with those individuals and why they started giving to an organization's mission in the first place. So just a couple of quick examples. We've seen surges at food banks um, across the country because need has obviously surged as well and and our, our communities have stepped up. Uh, Healthcare organizations have seen large influxes of new donors, um, particularly because of the the frontline response that they're obviously showing. But here's something that's super fascinating to me and I haven't quite figured out why. We know that the arts and cultural sector has struggled uh, pretty substantially through COVID, needing to shut their doors, particularly organizations that rely on ticketing funds and subscriptions to fuel their, their budgets. And that's true at the local level, but when we look at national arts organizations fundraising nationally, even they have seen an influx of new donors that I certainly would not have anticipated. Now, as I said earlier, if we go back to these new donors and we use our standard retention appeals and our standard retention messaging that probably focuses on the core things that we're doing as a mission, but not on COVID or why those organizations started giving to us, we may be missing the boat in terms of uh, resonating with an individual to continue to give going forward and understanding why they started to give in the first place.
0: Yeah, I think your observations are spot on. And certainly in the data, we have seen human services organizations, healthcare organizations, faith-based organizations actually doing quite well from a fundraising perspective, third and fourth quarter of 2020, which was a, a big rebound. I, you know, the, the arts and cultural thing is interesting. You And we've talked about this before uh, on the show that obviously those organizations have a challenge in that memberships or ticketing or, or those types of programmatic, you know, funding opportunities really had a significant impact in, in 2020. But it is interesting to see that some of the larger national uh, and global arts and culture organizations have done well from a fundraising perspective. And part of it could just simply be <laughs> we're, we as humans and donors are taking stock of the things that we are passionate about, things that we care about. And for many of us, it is the arts and, and cultural aspects of society and those benefits that are important to us. And we're choosing to give there because, quite frankly, a lot of us just can't participate in those things in a way in which we used to before. And, and that makes a connection back to the mission.
1: Absolutely. And and I think it's to your point that those of us who do appreciate the arts want to make sure that when the world returns to whatever our new normal looks like, those, those organizations that we supported in the past are still there so that we can continue to enjoy the plays or the art or the ballet or the whatever that happens to be coming out. But it's, I also just want to note that I'm going to get data nerdy for a moment, but I know, Steve, you don't mind that at all. Nope, go ahead. Um, (laughs) So part of this, um, I just want to make sure that our listeners know a little bit of a nuance based on some of the data that I happen to be looking at. Part of this has to do with sample set. And what I mean by that is, what data are we actually looking at and what data are we comparing year over year? And I think that's going to be really important for our listeners as they think about how they Um, analyze their own internal performance because what I typically look at when I look at trends by sector is direct, is direct marketing programs. So things like um, direct mail, phone and, and telethon programs, um, email, online giving, uh, canvassing when canvassing existed. What I'm not doing, and this is a, as a whole in my analysis, is I'm not comparing giving that comes from different channels or different uh, methodologies. And the reason why I'm mentioning this with arts and culture is because as you were talking, Steve, it occurred to me that what could also be happening is that individuals who previously supported arts and cultural organizations by buying a ticket or becoming a member might have this year chosen to make a purely philanthropic gift instead so that their dollar spend is the same. It's just just being coded in the nonprofit's database differently because they didn't have a ticket to buy. I don't know that that's true, but I'm acknowledging that it's probably something to take a look at because we know that ticketing revenue is going to be down So if that same person has now become a new donor, pure philanthropic donor, it may actually be inflating those new donor counts a little bit. Still important, still we should be paying attention to it, but a nuance that I I didn't really um, reflect on until about two minutes ago. I think we just
0: found a research project to work on.
1: I do as well. (laughs) It is an interesting point. You know, I think
0: you and I have both, when we're working with organizations or at events, I mean, both of us talk about the importance of people who give to you in other ways, like through a membership program or um, through volunteering. They're they're telling you that they are passionate about what your organization does. That it, it's a sort of a on the love meter that it, the love meter is pinging. Right, we love you, and we're doing these things, which is also why we've always recommended that when you are you know developing your fundraising program and your personas. Don't leave out people who are members or patrons or volunteers because, in fact, those people are showing that they have a connection to the cause. Now, will you get all of them? No. Will you get some of them? Yes, because they're sending you signals. And it would be very interesting to do some analysis to see is there a substitution happening here, which is because I can't support you by going to the museum or the aquarium or the ballet or what whatever it happens to be that I'm going to support you in some other way because I know that that's important. So it'd be interesting to dig into that a bit.
1: Yeah, and when we've done analysis on what I'll call engagement factors, so those things like volunteerism, like uh, buying tickets, like how a person or excuse me, how a person interacts with an organization beyond donations, we do find that there is a correlation between the engagement that a person has and whether or not they are also financially do- donating, just purely philanthropically um, to the mission itself. So uh, it's it's an interesting thing that I think we should research this year. Yeah, I think
0: the other thing that you know may be happening here as well, and I think worth us talking about. You know, we we know that um, there are certain organizations that deal with a lot of episodic fundraising, international relief animal welfare organizations, you know, there's an earthquake, flood, fire, something not good, but it tends to be a, a certain type of organization that really focuses in that area. And whenever we're talking to other groups about that, we talk about the fact that um, being responsive is very important, showing the impact of the gift. But in many ways, nearly every nonprofit organization had, episodic donors in 2020, whether they think about it that way or not. Suddenly everyone you know was, was getting gifts in the wake of COVID, whether they were directly involved or not in, in trying to help, because certainly so many organizations were directly impacted. And to your point about the retention, this is exactly what organizations really specialize in and episodic donors deal with is I need to retain that donor. When the bad thing has stopped or at least slowed down or, you know, that there's still a need there, that the need goes on. And I think that's an important lesson for all organizations to think about, which is uh, the need is still there. How do we show impact? How do we communicate, you know, the importance of what's happening? And how do we make the donor the hero of the story about why that gift was so important?
1: It's interesting because I I think I remember us talking about that a little bit back in April, but from the flip side, which is just because COVID is happening doesn't mean that your mission doesn't matter right now, especially if your mission isn't directly tied to COVID response now. At that time, we were all so new to COVID that I don't think we realized how long we'd be having this conversation. Um, and at this point, you're right, I don't think there's any uh, any part of the, of the nonprofit sector that hasn't been impacted in one way or another. Uh, but it goes back to what I said earlier, it's why the retention messaging is really important because that initial reason for giving hasn't gone away yet, even though someone's first gift might have been in April or May or September of 2020. We're still living with COVID right now, um, and we will be for months to come. So anything that an organization can do, particularly for those first-time COVID donors, to tie their retention messaging and their 2021 asks back to somehow the COVID impact and the mission at the same time, I think is going to resonate a lot better than using a purely generic mission-based messaging.
0: Yeah, no, that's a a good point. Um, What are some things that you've started to see organizations do from a data and analytics perspective that may have been different BC before COVID versus what we're seeing now?
1: I don't know that it's different so much as it's more of, and it's leaning into good practices. Because the reality is, is that if you have good data analytics practices at place, you have good data hygiene practices at place. It's not necessarily that your strategy has to change in terms of how you're using your data, but listening to it more and responding to it more and thinking strategically about how to impl- how to apply it. Now, I do think that I've seen a. A lot of organizations who didn't have good data and analytics practices realize how critical it is this past year. And we're seeing more and more organizations um, understanding that they need to be paying more attention to data hygiene. They need to be paying more attention to strategic segmentation and using data and analytics to help them do that. So that's been awesome. But for the ones that have already been using it, it's more the application of.
0: Yeah, and maybe in some ways they may have had a, a bit more time or more opportunities to think about, okay, how, how are we going to take advantage of some of the analytics that we've you know used previously or maybe haven't used in a while or some new things that we want to add into the mix?
1: Yes. And it's also, you know, one of my soapboxes has always been, and, and we've talked about this before, that analytics is not just designed to help an organization understand who to focus on, but also who not to focus on. And unfortunately, a lot of the organizations and customers that we work with have saw budget cuts last year. So one of the questions that they have really focusing on more than I think they have in the past is where can we trim our spend without hurting the the money that we're bringing in and the money that we're raising? And the natural extension of that is um, who should we not be paying as much attention to that's on our file? the idea of mailing more or calling more or email blasting more is going to raise more money doesn't always hold true. And at some point there's a there's a point of, of diminishing returns if that's the right expression. So that's something too, that I think uh, we've been really uh, focused on with our customers is being smart and being strategic, relying on data, relying on analytics, to help identify the right segment for the right campaign and being okay with not not doing the, the splatter shot across the entire database all the time,
0: yeah, and how much of it Melissa is just this idea that organizations are are leveling up their skill set you know we've talked for many, many, many years about the importance of segmentation, targeting personas to the point where we sort of wonder, do we still have to talk about that sometimes we do. But a lot of organizations have have implemented that and are doing well with it. And I think a common question we get is, "Okay, what's next? I'm doing that. What can I do next? And, And in many ways, starting to apply the use of some more analytics is another level up, another step up, if you will, from what they were doing before. Is that a good way to think about it?
1: I think it is. I think there's been an evolution in the big data is such a cliche term at this point, but there really has been an evolution in how data intelligence, how artificial intelligence, how data science have been used uh, in in the world of philanthropy. Um, years ago, it was just about simple segmentation, looking at things like recency, frequency, monetary, sometimes called RFM, um, looking at things like maybe age or or zip code. Uh, and then we, we've moved into wealth screening, I don't know, 20 or so years ago, we moved into predictive modeling. Over the past few years, the the smartest organizations have been leveling up by thinking about cluster segmentation or sometimes called personas, and how we could get beyond just the idea of segmenting out the population, but also better understanding the how we should be communicating with different groups and what kind of messaging is going to resonate best? What kind of channel is going to resonate best? Uh, there's so many people in the industry think direct mail is dead. It's not dead. We just got to find the right segments, and some segments af- actually respond better through direct mail than they do through anything else that we could be doing.
0: Or in some cases, it's the combination of that direct mail plus digital or other things that actually are what works effectively. That it's it's not just one one channel, but the multi-channel approach that resonates and works well with supporters.
1: Yeah, that's actually a really good point, too, because uh, it's it's something else that, that we're seeing for organizations that have uh, multi-channel fundraising programs. The donors that they get the largest value out of are the ones that are giving through multiple channels. That also means they're giving multiple gifts, which is always a good thing as well.
0: Now, the other thing we know is that organizations don't operate in a vacuum, right? Uh, There are a lot of organizations out there trying to connect and communicate with constituents and supporters. How is it that organizations can, can sort of cut through that noise a bit more than perhaps they've done in the
1: past? Well, you know, I, I just said it, but I think the idea of cluster segmentation and, and personas is something that is, can be incredibly powerful that we really haven't leveraged as, as well as we could have in the past. Um, you know, at Blackbaud, we've been doing a lot of work around creating these cluster segmentations around different types of things within the fundraising industry. It doesn't just have to be one type of uh, thing. Today, we've been talking a lot about direct marketing. So if I just stick there for a moment, um, you know, Channel preference is one piece of it, uh, but i'll I'll give you a specific example. So we have a series of direct marketing personas that essentially places every uh, every person into one of seven different broad categories that talks about philanthropic motivation, that talks about um, how they like to give, that talks about when they give. And little tweaks that an organization can do to their messaging, or at least being thoughtful about who they're speaking to when they're crafting their appeals could go a really long way. Um, So the last time we met, I know we talked about two different personas. I believe it was world changers and movers and shakers. Today I'll pick two different ones. We'll talk about busy bees and solid citizens. And I know I said this the last time, so our repeat listeners, uh, apologies for the repeat here, but the names don't really matter. It just gives us something to conceptualize around when we're just talking about it. So solid citizens, solid citizens are uh, people that typically have modest means so that they don't have a lot of net worth. They tend to be more traditional in their outlook, but they tend to be incredibly motivated by well-run organizations. And they like to see long lasting opportunities that sort of make uh, make them see how their money is making a difference, but it's not emotional. Um, So their gifts tend to be modest because they don't have a lot of net worth, but they're incredibly dependable. Key here, dependable means retention, right? Um, They're also way more likely to give via mail and not via online, and they're not very active on social media. Okay, so keep that in mind for a moment. Now, my,
0: my, My assumption would be they also are probably a very good source for future plan gifts as well.
1: Yes, probably true, probably very, very true. So then we have a group called Busy Bees. Busy Bees are more active. They tend to be more family oriented. They have higher levels of net worth. They tend to be more well-educated. They also like to see how their gifts make a difference, but here are some differences. They tend to be more sporadic in their giving. They tend to be incredibly active on social media and they tend to be more likely to give online. Now, both groups, we know like multiple updates and touches throughout the year so that they could see how that gift is making a difference. Solid citizens like aggregate information, big picture. Busy bees like more anecdotes and very specific things. Um, And we also know that they both happen to respond well to, um, to animals. Now, this doesn't mean that they're only gonna give to animal welfare organizations but let's see how we can think about these two groups and craft some messaging that makes sense. Imaging and words both matter. So uh, let's say we have a picture of grandpa walking a dog in a park with grandkid, sort of nice homey image. We got some tradition in there that's gonna appeal to solid citizens. We've got family in there that might appeal to busy bees. The dog is an animal, so that's gonna give some warm and fuzzies same image images tend to be expensive Uh, now let's think about language for the solid citizens maybe my messaging talks about how whatever organization this happens to be has been around since 1940 and they've been providing services in the community Um, however since covid started uh, demand has increased 50 percent and the support of the community has helped them keep up with the demand so that's talking about broad-based community, and it's also talking about numbers increase need. Same picture, busy bees. Maybe instead of talking about the community in 1940, which is traditional and old and long lasting, the message flips, same picture. Thanks to your gift, Philip has been able to join his grandson on weekly socially distanced COVID appropriate walks in the park. We got to find a better way of saying that. I'm not a crafter of language here.
0: Copywriters can help us.
1: Yes. But the point is that message is very different because it's focused on the person. It's focused on an anecdote. It's focused on what's happening versus the length of time that the community has been involved and the breadth of outreach. Little changes like that can make a difference in terms of how a reader whether it be an online message or a direct marketing message and i'd send email to one group and direct marketing to the other uh, may respond to what you're putting out in the place and again it ties back to covid and it ties back to what your organization is doing that's the thing that i don't think we've capitalized on quite enough we've talked about differentiated messaging for years but we've never really talked about how to do it or how to or how we know who should be getting what types of messages other than just testing a b testing for instance. Um, and this concept of personas sure, still do your a b testing, but it starts you off from a much um, much more sophisticated playing field in understanding where you might want to test different types of things
0: yeah you're you're certainly closer to the goal line <laughs> than just guessing or. Or trying to test your way to it, especially if you can zero in closer on some of these personas and what they actually care about and the messaging that resonates with them.
1: And, you know, you could do it the other way too. You could use this instead the, the of the same picture with two different messages, maybe it's uh, the same message with two different pictures. As I said, there's seven of these. Maybe you don't want to have seven different messages and seven different images coming out of your organization. So you find commonalities between the between two or three of them, so you could cluster your clusters, so to speak. Uh, there's lots of different ways to to apply this, uh, but otherwise, you know, if you if you have this concept that online donation is more successful than direct marketing or direct, direct mail and you are only emailing out your retention appeals. I'm being facetious. I don't really think that a lot of organizations are doing this, but you may be excluding an entire sector or section within your database, in this case, our solid citizens, who we know are not giving online.
0: Yeah, and I think it's a great example of moving from the who to the what and specific examples on the how. Melissa, we'd love to have you back on a future episode, and maybe we can talk about some more of this, how do we get to the how and be effective with it for organizations?
1: That would be great.
0: That's it for this episode of the SG Engage podcast. This episode is brought to you by the letter L. Thanks for listening.